0: It would be great if you had that passage open before you this evening, Luke chapter (coughs) 1. Let us pray. Come, O come, Emmanuel. Father God, we've been singing... Uh, We've been praying. We've been opening our lives to your coming. Lord, we thank you for all those ways in which you do come to us. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that your spirit opens your word to us. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word just now, You would come to us in this moment, in this place, and be Emmanuel, God with us, speaking to us. Amen. Today's the first Sunday of Advent. Um, That will mean something to some of you. Nothing. To, to some of you maybe also. It's not a big part of our Presbyterian tradition to celebrate the seasons of the year in any uh, full-blooded way, but certainly from my background, uh, my German heritage, Advent has always played an important part in my life, and I've sort of brought that into church life with me, and I hope you'll forgive me for that. The reason, I suppose, why I am keen to do that is I'm keen to offer a a counter approach to Christmas. Uh, The the default approach to Christmas that we're offered is one of frenetic shopping, running around, getting ready, uh, getting stressed uh, about Christmas. But I think Advent allows us a a different opportunity. Fiona used the word contemplation, Uh, I think preparation a time to open our lives to God and to wait. The word Advent, and you probably have gathered this by now, it simply means arrival or coming. So it's a season beginning on the fourth Sunday before Christmas where we take time to to contemplate the arrival or the coming of Jesus. Now, I think it's important that we think for a second about what that might mean for us. We're not simply remembering an arrival that happened in the past. We are doing that. But if we stop there, we'll miss a lot of what what Advent could be for us. We're also remembering a future coming of Jesus. His second coming, Jesus Christ, will return. There will be another Advent. And maybe that's somewhat obvious to those of us who who know the, the teaching of God's Word. But I think in between, we're waiting for another Advent, and that's today's. We're waiting, opening our lives for those ways in which God is going to come and make himself at home with us. So I'd encourage you to take Advent seriously this season. I wonder as we approach, you know, it's the 2nd of December, Christmas is still a wee bit off. I wonder what your expectations are for this Christmas. Do you believe that, that Jesus Christ will come and make himself at home with you this Christmas time? I wonder, do we really believe that he'll come into the middle of our everyday routines and that while we're in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, that somehow Christ will be there with us. I wonder, do we believe that? Mary did. The shepherds believed it. And so did the wise men from the East. So have millions of followers of Jesus Christ throughout the history of the church. Tonight, we're going to take a step of faith as we begin our Advent season. And we're going to take some time to prepare ourselves To receive Jesus Christ in the hope and in the prayer that that's exactly what happens. That this Christmas we'll know Emmanuel, God with us. I've chosen to do this in in a very particular way. We're going to look at the first couple of chapters of Luke's Gospel and we're going to pay attention in particular to the prayers of the characters in those first two chapters. In our morning services recently, we've been thinking about the spiritual disciplines. Those practices that God uses to to make us more like Jesus, well, prayer towers above the other practices. This is a practice that allows us to open our lives in in a wonderful way to God's presence and God's being with us. Before we charge in and look at some of what we read there a moment ago, I want to dwell with you for a moment on Luke's gospel. And if you're here this morning, you'll notice that more by accident than by design, you're going to get a bit of a feel for Luke's gospel. Luke is in all probability the only Gentile or non-Jewish writer. So that's going to influence how he records the events of Jesus' life for us. He's also the the only of the gospel writers who wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus. And if you were here this morning, uh, David pointed that out to us very well. He talked about how how Luke probably went and interviewed people like Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, Drew out from her some of her experiences uh, in the early life of the Savior. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 3 that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. So Luke's a journalist He's gone out, he, he's done his research, he's done it carefully, he's, he's checked his references, cross-checked them. He's happy that everything that he records here is an accurate account of Jesus. But he's, he's unique among the gospel writers because he didn't see this stuff with his own eyes. Everything that Luke knows about Jesus comes to him through the Holy Spirit working in the community of Jesus' people. Luke talks about the Holy Spirit more than any of the other gospel writers, and you can check that for yourself sometimes. Nowadays, by the way, you don't have to to read through the gospels and count that. You can do it all on, on Bible software at home. Just ask for each of the gospels, type in the word spirit, and they'll tell you how often it appears. Mark only mentions the Spirit six times. Matthew 12 times, John 15 times, and Luke leads the way with 17 or or possibly 18 mentions of the Holy Spirit. By the time you get to a sequel book, (coughs) he really uh, starts to to recognize the Spirit 57 times in a book the, the same length roughly as his gospel, the Holy Spirit's mentioned. It all begs a question. Why is Luke so preoccupied with the Holy Spirit? What is it about him that that makes him uh, so aware of the work of the Spirit? Well, I think there's a very natural reason. Matthew and Mark and John had seen Jesus. They'd heard him. They'd touched him. They'd walked along the streets with him. They'd prayed with him. They'd listened to him as he taught and as he preached. They'd watched him crucified. They were witnesses to his resurrection. They saw him ascend into heaven. So they have a very, a very straightforward human connection with Jesus Christ. But Luke didn't have that. Everything that Luke knows about the Spirit, or, or everything that he knows about Jesus, sorry, has come to him as the Spirit, working in the community of Jesus makes it available to him. So the Holy Spirit, God's way of being present to us, makes it all makes it all fresh and real for Luke, the gospel writer. So the Holy Spirit plays a huge role in Luke's receiving and grasping of the gospel. I think once we understand that, once we understand Luke's own experience, we can understand why the Spirit's so central in everything for Luke as he writes the gospel for those in his community. Let's, let's start to look now at Luke's account. When we come to look at the events surrounding the birth of Jesus in the opening chapters, we're going to see the Holy Spirit all over the place. And that, that's one thing I want you to notice. There, there are seven references to the Holy Spirit in these first couple of chapters. And that's, that's maybe strange, because we approach this time of the year and we're thinking, we're thinking incarnation. We're thinking human, God in human form. But actually, the Holy Spirit is all over the place here. And I want you to notice that as we read. So the first reference to the Spirit comes in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Gabriel's message to Zechariah. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from birth. So that's the first. The second reference to the spirit comes when Luke describes the events that happened six months later. Gabriel makes the journey north, 80 miles or so up to Galilee, shows up in Mary's home, and he announces that she, too, is going to have a baby. Now, Mary challenges Gabriel's naivete about the human reproductive system. That's impossible. I'm a virgin. But Gabriel tells her in verse 35 how it will happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Two births, two times we're told that the Spirit is at the center of it all. Do you see what's happening here? These are both miraculous births. You're probably inclined to to focus on on the miracle of Mary's birth. But so we're told is is the birth of Elizabeth's son. These two women both stand at the extremes of possibility regarding conception. One is a barren post-menopausal old woman. And Mary is a young virgin. And yet they're both going to have babies. Do you see what Luke's doing here? He's highlighting these miraculous births so that we can see God's hand in this. Without the work of God's Holy Spirit, neither of these babies would be born. There'd be no Jesus and there'd be no John the Baptist to prepare the way for him. It's all the work of God by his Spirit. Everything that's going on in these chapters is a miraculous work of God. It's all by the power of the Spirit. Now there's something I want you to notice in passing here. Although these births are miraculous, or sorry, the conceptions are miraculous, the births themselves are natural. In each case, there's a nine-month pregnancy. The Holy Spirit doesn't bypass that. I, for one, don't agree with the hymn writer when he says that little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Jesus, on his birth, cried just as any healthy baby born into this world has ever cried. He and his cousin John were both weaned from their mother's breast and at some point started to eat semi-solid and then solid food. They both started off probably lying on their backs a lot of the day. And then one day they rolled over and a few days later they started to crawl They both started out speaking that language that only they could understand, that their parents weren't smart enough to understand. But over time, they started to say words and phrases and sentences. Folks, it's important to see this. Whenever the Holy Spirit conceives a life, it's miraculous in its conception but then becomes natural in its living out. The life that the Spirit births into people on this earth isn't a weird and unhuman life. It ends up being a a wonderfully human life. Being a Spirit-filled person doesn't make us less human. It didn't make Jesus less human. And we're told, for example, in Hebrews 4, that Jesus was tested in every way as we are. The Holy Spirit didn't skip out any normal parts in the life of Jesus. And he won't skip out any normal parts in our life either. He won't make us less human as his presence fills our lives. And where I I find this really, really exciting, once it dawns on us that God is willing to put the whole of his spirit into an ordinary human life. That means that for you and I, there is no part of our lives that God isn't willing to enter into. There's nothing about me or about you that can't be made wonderful and a glowing testimony to the presence of God in us. There's nothing, there's nothing innate in us that limits what God could do in us and through us. The human being, it turns out, is God's perfectly designed vehicle for his presence in the world. It's mind blowing. our human lives, I think, have an incredible meaning and dignity that's only beginning to dawn on us. We are the place where God wants to be. Whenever we're together, we're called a temple of the Holy Spirit. This this community here, this group of people here, Sunday the 2nd of December 2007, this is where God wants to be. So when we're followers of Jesus Christ, then our lives have an incredible continuity with Jesus. The same Spirit who worked miraculously in the conception of Jesus works miraculously in ours. Do you understand that? The new life that's in us is miraculously conceived in us by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jesus talked about the language of being born again? Born of the spirit it's a totally new thing it's the life of God's spirit in us and, and it's awesome I've wanted to say a wee bit of that by way of background but in this series and now for the rest of our time this evening I want to think with you about prayer the Holy Spirit you see God's way of of being with us, working through us, speaking to us, is the way in which we're drawn into the life of Jesus Christ. But prayer is the way in which we open our lives to that presence of the Spirit. Prayer is our way or our practice to allow the Spirit access to us. And now it's not surprising if, if you've stuck with the logic of what we've said so far this evening, Luke, who's, who's interested in the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not surprising then that he's very much interested in prayer. Just as these early chapters of his gospel are brimming with references to the Holy Spirit, they're replete with examples of people praying. So let's, let's notice that. Over these next three Sunday evenings, we're going to pay attention to the prayers of of the opening two chapters of Luke's gospel. And we're going to see what we can learn this Advent time about prayer and how we could be waiting for Jesus. There are five prayers in these first two chapters. The church has adopted them, actually, each one of them into its liturgy historically. And, And those of you, this is a chance for you to feel a wee bit smug and snobbish if you're into classical music because you'll maybe recognize them by their Latin names, at least some of them. They're commonly referred to by the Latin words that that begin the prayer. So, Gary, if you could show that slide of of these five prayers in Luke's Gospel. Even I recognized one or two of them, but some of you might uh, be aware of all of them from your knowledge, uh, particularly of classical music. So those are the, the Latin titles. Those are the biblical references of of these five prayers in Luke's gospel. We're going to spend the remainder of our time this evening just looking at the first of these. And we'll pick up the others over the next couple of weeks. Thanks for that, Gary. Mary's prayer. There are actually two of them, but we're going to look at the first this evening, the Fiat Mehi, is Mary's response to Gabriel's announcement that she's going to conceive and bear a child, the Son of God. God. By the Holy Spirit. It's actually a very short prayer. Let it be to me according to your word. There's a lot that we could say about Gabriel's announcement to Mary, about her, uh, about the circumstances surrounding this annunciation. But we're going to limit our reflections to just a few this evening and then we're going to look at the prayer. First of all, notice the ordinariness of Mary. Don't let this be lost on you, a virgin, very likely a teenager in that culture, of Nazareth. That's a small community, miles away from the power and the influence and the intellectual center at Jerusalem. It's Mary's ordinariness, I think, that explains her amazement when Gabriel appears and says, greetings, you who are highly favored. No one's ever told Mary that she's highly favored. Mary's lot in life has been to simply fade into the background. A humble maid in a small community. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. She has no idea why she should be the recipient of a message like this. Mary's so ordinary. Maybe you're here this evening, and you think that God comes to other people. People other than you. People who are smarter. People who are more moral and upright. People whose families are the kind of families where these things happen you maybe imagine there's something about you that makes you not quite the type of person to whom God comes. Remember Mary in her ordinariness. Had this angel not appeared to Mary, she would have been as invisible on the pages of human history as every one of us. The one thing that made Mary remarkable was that God came to her? God comes to ordinary people. Notice, too, if you can, through all the years of nativities and sermons you've had to put up with, the extraordinariness of what, what the angel announces to her. You're going to have a child and give birth to a son. You'll give him the name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary, you're going to have a son. Call him Jesus. Because he's going to save his people. And another thing. He'll be the son of the most high he will be the king of a dynasty, the dynasty of David. And of course, that means he's going to rule over Israel. And by the way, his kingdom isn't going to be like all the others. All the others that faded away and that ended. It will never end. So Gabriel's announcement to a very ordinary Mary is completely Extraordinary. Mary struggles to take it in. And in my naivety, I sort of expect that that she'd find it hard to take in all that stuff about giving birth to the Son of the Most High who's going to be a king whose kingdom will never end. I thought that's the part she'd have problems with. (laughs) I don't think she's even got there. The angels told her she's going to have a baby. (laughs) She's a virgin. Mary says, What are you talking about? I'm a virgin. And it's at this point that Gabriel explains to her what we talked about a moment ago. It's going to be a Holy Spirit thing. You will have a baby because the Holy Spirit of God will come upon you. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus would never have been conceived. Everything that's going on in these chapters is a miraculous work of God. It's all by the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend quite literally just the last couple of moments looking at Mary's response and looking at what we can learn about prayer. I I think it's just a a beautiful response. Sometimes I think uh, we prods uh, have been a bit wary of giving Mary any credit here she says a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think this is a foundational response. It's the best response that any child of God can make when they hear the Word of God. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me, as you have said. She's ready. Without reservation, she's ready for whatever God has called her to and wants to do in her and through her. This is Mary's first prayer. The first prayer of Luke's gospel. And the thing I think we must notice here is that prayer begins when God addresses us. First of all, God speaks and prayer is our response And I think it's so important that we understand this about the life of prayer. We never initiate prayer, even though we think we do. We print our prayer guides. We send out our prayer emails. We set up our times of corporate prayer. It feels like we're the ones getting prayer off the ground. And that if we get it right, prayer will happen. And if we don't give enough energy and effort to it, prayer won't. For some reason, I've always been a little uncomfortable with that. And I think here this evening, I'm getting a moment of clarity. And it's this. Prayer begins when God speaks to us. We hear him and we respond to him. True prayer begins when God speaks. Think about how little children learn to speak. Is it with a parent standing in front of them saying, Speak, go on, do it, try harder, speak more? Or is it as a child grows up in an environment where they're surrounded by speech, where they hear speech, where they're spoken to? Is it not this speaking to them? That creates in them a desire one day to open their mouth and begin to say words back. So it is, I think, with prayer. We learn to speak to God as we respond to all those things that God is saying to us. The things that He says to us when we read His Word at home, the things that He says to us when we hear a sermon in church. The things that he says to us when a godly friend brings a timely word. The songs that we sing, the conversations that we have. Friends, this is why I've never felt comfortable in begging you and cajoling you to come and join us for times of corporate prayer. I've never quite felt comfortable with that. And I think I'm beginning to understand why. It's because true prayer is responsive. What I would love to do for you instead is to open God's Word to you, let you hear God speak, and bring together a community of people who are so convinced that God has spoken to us, so moved by the things that He said to us, that we wouldn't dream of keeping our silence. That we instead just naturally, like those little children, would learn to speak. My prayer for you folks is that, that you and that I together would be people who, who are so struck by all that God has said to us that we, we long will need to reply. And by the way, I don't mean by that that prayer is easy little children learning to speak don't find it easy. I think prayer is somehow natural for those who are in Christ, but there's much to learn. There's much that, that we must enter into, much to mature in, but I think there's something natural about it. And I would never want to, to lose that by, by cajoling you and, and begging you to be in prayer. So Mary's prayer fiat Mihi is the first prayer of the gospel story, and I think it teaches us this about prayer. A Christian at prayer in the end isn't so much somebody who, who comes and tells God loads of things or comes with a long list of instructions for God. I think a Christian truly at prayer is a person who's first heard God and then feels themselves prompted, feels themselves drawn to come and to say to God the same sort of thing that Mary has said here. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Folks, I thought we'd do something a little bit different in our service this evening, and that is to take some time to pray. I want to give you the opportunity to respond to God who is speaking to you. So could I encourage you to have that passage open before you this evening? Luke chapter 1, you'll find it on page 1026. Have particularly an eye on Mary's short prayer in, in, in verse 38 there. And I want to leave you a few moments in the silence now for you to offer this prayer up to God. I'll I'll maybe give you occasional prompts. I'll see how that goes in in particular ways where you might want to to pray this particular short prayer and offer it to God. Uh, Gillian is going to play just a few pieces, just quietly in the background, things that might just encourage you and help you to, to bring this prayer to the front of your mind, to open your hearts to God. This won't be long, by the way. Please don't panic. Um, just a few moments. But an opportunity to this, this Advent to do the thing that, that we maybe don't do very well, simply to wait and to respond to God. So let us pray. Father God, maybe in some regard you're calling us to step away from something in this world, some sinful habit that has us ensnared at this moment. Lord, as we reflect on that, we pray the prayer that Mary prayed. I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said Father God, we think of ways in which maybe you're asking some of us to go into the world. Places where we know you're prompting us to go. People to whom you're sending us with a word of encouragement. Lord, help us to say we are your servants. May it be to us as you have said. Father God, some of us have sensed you talking to us in recent times about a a new sacrificial step that you're calling us to, a venture of faith. Lord, help us to submit to you in this, to say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Father God, we bring you these, the prayers of our hearts. You have spoken to us. You've placed your call on our lives. And we offer you these, our responses. Lord, may it be to us as you have said. Lord, we would love it if our lives were just the lives that you've called us to. If our lives were exactly those lives that you long for us to live. If we were in the places, doing the work, reaching the people, exactly those whom you have called us to. Lord, may it be to us as you have said. Amen.